Morning, everyone. Let's, uh, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, may the name of the Lord Jesus be exalted in our hearts as we hear you speak to us now. Uh, in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, the business of naming a newborn infant can be a fraught one, can't it? As a faculty, we have the privilege of praying for our students every Monday morning, and virtually every week we'll be praying for somebody who's expecting a baby. And I always find myself haunted by the reminder of all the difficult decisions that needed to be made when a baby arrives. You know, what colour clothes should we tell people to buy? Sometimes we already know the gender and so we can tell in advance, but other times we don't know or we don't want people to know and so the family and friends are sort of left wondering what colour to buy, blue? But what if it really should be pink? Pink, what if it really should be blue? And so we go for yellow instead, just to be safe. Is the room ready? Is it the right colour? Do we have a serviceable cot? When our first child was born, we were about to move countries, and so he had to make do with a cardboard box. Please don't <laughs> report that to anyone. But the most important and potentially fraught decision is the name of the child. We all know people like someone in my family uh, who, with each of their children, hadn't settled on a name until a good two weeks after the child was born. And so for a, a time, the child would simply be known as Poppy or Freddie. And then, of course, when the name was eventually decided, you'd wonder why they hadn't just stuck with Poppy or Freddie. <laughs> it's a fraught business. Who has the authority to decide the name? The parents or are there other uh, players? Are there other players involved like the grandparents or the wider family? Has the name been used before by other people, maybe other famous people? Will the name fit the child or will they grow up to regret it like an uncomfortable missized pair of clothes? And then how will people use the name or respond to the name? Will it be honoured or will it be revered or will it risk be becoming the butt of endless jokes? I mean, if you, I'm sorry to pick on the name Rex again, but if you call your son Rex, you're on a hiding to nothing because there's one thing, if there's one thing he's surely not, he's not Rex, unless he is King Charles, of course, because, of course, the name Rex means king. Well, over the last two weeks, we've been meditating on the names given to the Son of God. Not so much as the eternal word or the son of the, the eternal word of the Father or the eternal Son, but those names that were given to him as he entered this world in our human flesh. Two weeks ago, the name Emmanuel. Last week, a fourfold name. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then today, the name which is undoubtedly the most famous of all, the one most commonly used throughout his own life and ministry, throughout the life and ministry of the apostles, and the one perhaps which takes us right to the heart of this child's vocation. A name that is above every name, the name Jesus. How could we ever do it justice? But as we meditate on this name, all the questions I think that we ask when we deliberate over the names of our own children are lurking in the background here in the announcement of this name, Jesus, in the opening chapter of Matthew's Gospel. First of all, there is the question of the authority upon which this child is to be named. 
in the ancient world, Joseph, betrothed to Mary, would normally have that honour, but as this child takes shape in his fiancée's womb without, as it were, to put it delicately, any involvement or input of his own, Joseph is confronted with what, for all intents and purposes, looks like a scandal unfolding before him. A tragic scandal which, for whatever reason, has implicated Mary and from which he now rightly seeks to extricate himself, rightly and honourably, at least from the perspective of the Jewish law, but without bringing upon Mary any undue shame. And as he considered all this, we're told in verse 20, and oh my, isn't that an understatement? What a dizzying and agonising blow all of this must have been to Joseph. But as Joseph pondered it all, surely one of the many questions swirling around in his head must have been, do I have any authority to name a child who is not my own? Indeed, do I have any entitlement to this child at all? Will he not simply be a mumza, as an illegitimate child was called in Hebrew? as indeed we know this child was, a mumza. Yet into the turmoil of Joseph's world, there like a bombshell lands one of those great biblical interjections. But, behold, look, see, verse 20, an angel appeared to soothe his troubled soul with an announcement from the living Lord himself who shed light on this miraculous mystery that was slowly taking shape in the wife, this woman Mary, that it was, was to be his wife. Son of David, do not be ashamed to take Mary home as your wife. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It's an announcement which in one sense confirms exactly what Joseph perhaps feared. He has no authority to name this child at all, none at all. For the authority upon which this child is to be named derives from a calling which reaches back into the mists of eternity and into the heart of the living God himself. He is to be given the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And no man, no woman, no mortal has the authority to grant that kind of title to another. Such would be blasphemy of the highest order. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no saviour. For salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lord alone. And when this child eventually emerges into adulthood, is there anything more apparent to him than the sense that his calling and destiny derives from the authority of none other than the living Lord himself? My food, he says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And what was that work to which the father had called him? This is the will of my father, he says, that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him should have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, you see, but rather that the world through him might be saved. Was there ever a man so free as this man, yet who so thoroughly married himself to this calling and destiny of God? The God who had measured out every moment of his life in accord with this name he gave him, the name Jesus. And so, no, Joseph has no authority to grant so great a name and so great a calling upon this child at all, for such a prerogative belongs only to the Lord himself. And there's a sense in which the angel's announcement confirms all that. Which is why it is that when the angel then commands Joseph to name this child Jesus... The Lord is, in fact, granting upon him a grace and dignity of staggering proportions. You are to call him Jesus. As if to say, this child I am giving to you, to you and your kin, to your wife, to your children and grandchildren, to your parents and grandparents, to the whole house of David from which you have descended, indeed, to the entire human family that that house of David was called to bless. I am giving this child to you and your kin so that from now on his name and his calling and his destiny will be bound up with yours and yours with his. You are to call him Jesus, for he will save his people, his kin, his family from their sin. So that is the authority upon which Joseph is granted this staggering privilege to name this child Jesus, which he then, of course, does. But it's not a name without precedent, of course. It had been used before on many occasions. For all its singular dignity, the name Yeshua, Yahweh saves, or its longer form, Yehoshua, Yahweh is salvation, was of course common enough in Joseph's day. And in Joseph's mind, two Joshuas from Israel's history would undoubtedly have surfaced from among the rest, as indeed, no doubt, they do for us. There is the great Joshua who would lead God's people from the edge of the wilderness across the Jordan into the promised land, into a place of rest, a place where they would find rest from their enemies. It was, of course, only a salvation in a political and geographical sense, and even then it was a destiny that the first Joshua couldn't quite manage to fulfil. And then much later there is another Joshua, Joshua the high priest, and that remarkable prophetic vision that we just heard read, tucked away in the book of Zechariah, of this high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, dressed in tattered, filthy garments, with Satan standing by, itching to point the finger at all his sin and guilt, only then for the angel to remove these soiled garments from Joshua clothe him in finery and pronounce him innocent and free from all guilt. 
Surely Joseph must have begun to sense, as we do, that the choice of the name Jesus for this child suggests the gathering up into his destiny, the fulfilment of all of those shadowy anticipations in the lives of those Joshuas who went before him. So while this name Jesus, with all that it signals about his identity and destiny, is a name that ultimately only God has the authority to grant, it's not one without shadowy precedent, is it? And those precedents are highly suggestive indeed. And then, of course, was there ever a name that fit a child more perfectly than this? Imagine walking around in first century Palestine and bumping into that man who was once blind. Oh, look, there's Bartimaeus. Hello, Bartimaeus. So nice to see you after such a long time. But last time... I saw you, you were unable to see me. What miracle has happened to give you back your sight? Well, I met Jesus, you see, and he saved me from my blindness. Or maybe you bump into the man who had once been lame. How are you able to walk? And he would say, because Jesus saved me from my lameness. Or the man who was once deaf, Jesus saved me from my deafness. Or Lazarus, though once dead, now alive. Because you see, Jesus saved me from death. All of these testimonies, just little signposts, little outcrops of the power this Jesus has to deal with the root cause of all of our most intractable woes. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, from their penalty, from their guilt and shame, from their cursed power over our lives, from the alienation and havoc they wreak on our relationships with God, with one another. Jesus, the true Joshua, who grants everlasting rest for the weary soul who bears the tattered, filthy garments of our polluted hearts so that in him we might be washed white as snow. Oh, there has never been a name that has fit a man more perfectly than this name, Jesus. A name which soothes all sorrows, heals all wounds and drives away all fear. An aim to make the wounded spirit whole and calm a troubled breast. Manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds, so the hymn begins. Could there ever be a sweeter name than this? So why is it then that as this Jesus prepared his grief-stricken disciples for his betrayal, for his arrest and trial and execution the very next day, why is it that as he sought to prepare them to face the very same things themselves, why did he warn them that it will be because of my name that they will treat you this way? So that when some of those very disciples were later dragged before the Sanhedrin, we're told that they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name, for that name. 
No doubt because they remembered those very words of Jesus the night before he died. How could a name so sweet prove to be so bitter? A curse, a profanity, a name that even today we cannot mention in public without at least some internal shudder at the sense of shame and embarrassment it's likely to provoke. It is perverse when you think about it, isn't it? How could so sweet a name, a name with the power to soothe our sorrows, to heal our wounds, to drive away all fear? I mean, what is it? What is there that anyone, more, more than that, that anyone could ever want or need? How could such a name with such power prove to be as bitter as this? But alas, I think there is a logic to this perversity. Because, you see, to digest the sweetness of this name is to digest a bitter truth about ourselves, is it not? You will call him Jesus, Saviour, for he will save his people from their sins. Here is a name, you see, that bulldozes through all of those distinctions that we help us to make sense of our lives and to our place in the world, that there are the good and the bad, that, that there are those who are all together and then there are those who are all messed up. And therefore, there are those whose company is to be sought and those whose company is to be avoided. It puts a bulldozer through all of that. Here is a name that pulls the rug from beneath everything that you and I at least thought had made our lives somewhat meaningful, working hard, making a decent effort, doing our best to act at least with good intentions, making a positive contribution here and there, being on the right side of whatever moral battle it happens to be. Here is a name that, if not calling all of that into question, laudable though it is, certainly throws it out the window as the basis of our existence. Here is a name that puts a spotlight on all those internal comparisons we make. A name that tears up the script of those mental dialogues that we're so fond of and so practised at, fantasising about what we think we deserve, cursing the successes and popularity of others, justifying ourselves in the face of our own hurts and failures and shortcomings by calling to mind our virtues and victories, consoling ourselves by rehearsing and relishing in the vices and limitations of those who have hurt us or who have managed to succeed where we have not. Here is a name, in other words, that leaves us dangling naked before God with nothing other than a long list of useless comparisons and meaningless self-justifications at his mercy. For I tell you, Jesus said to those confident of their own righteousness and who look down on others, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, this bad person, not that good person, went home justified before God. This tax collector, this drunkard, this thief, this lowlife who has squandered every chance and every gift and every opportunity, this proud, self-centred, self-indulgent creep, this 
philanderer, this rapacious sex offender, this horrific abuser, this murderer, this heretic, this coward, this two-faced, fork-tongued cad, this wicked, unattractive, pointless person went home justified before God and not the other. Isn't there a part of you, O oh Christian friend, which bristles when we hear that? That is how offensive and confronting this name Jesus really is, a name that compels me to face the truth that before the pile of self-justifications that I've constructed my whole life around, when all is said and done, before God, I am really no better than the people I despise and no less utterly at the disposal of his mercy and grace. For really to call upon this name Jesus would mean admitting things about myself, what I have done, what I have thought, what my heart is really like, that I'm certainly not ready to do with anyone else because at least in part I'm hardly yet ready to do it with myself. And yet such is the invitation of this name. This name that was given to that child who was given to the entire human family, the family of sinners by a loving, gracious, heavenly Father from whom, as Paul puts it, every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. This name, Jesus, the name above every name, which invites us to taste its sweetness only by swallowing its hard and bitter truth about ourselves. And it's an invitation, of course, that you and I need to hear again and again and again. From time to time, the Lord shocks us, doesn't he, with a reminder of just how black our hearts really are, doesn't he? We've all had that experience, as if to say, yes, that's right, you do really need a saviour. And I think there's a sense in which, in each of those moments, and indeed every time we're called to reflect on our hearts and confess our sins before the Lord, that we're being invited by him again to taste the liberating power, the freedom, the sweetness of this dear name. The rock on which to build, a shield and hiding place, a never failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace.